All right, guys, why don't the rest of you open your Bibles to the book of Luke is what we're going to be looking at here this morning. So we've been in a little bit of a series. I'm going to read this passage in just a moment, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. It's got a little bit of a lengthy passage. I'm going to read that in two seconds here. But before we jump into that, just uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. Uh, we've been in a series now, four weeks. Uh, this is the last and final week of this series of Advent. Um, historically, Christians have celebrated about four to six weeks coming up to the season of Christmas as a way of reminding themselves or re-tethering their lives to this ancient historic Christian story of God entering this world. Um, interestingly enough, that part of the process of remembering back the life and the birth of Jesus was actually more tethered in the future. And we'll get more into that in just a second here. In other words, much of the idea of celebrating Advent was actually anchored in the future, like looking forward to the second coming of Jesus as opposed to looking forward to the first coming of Jesus. But I'll talk about that more in just a second. But what I want to do right now is we've been looking at a few themes uh, in this season, um, specifically that pertain to the life, the story, the birth of Jesus. So first week, we looked at the subject of hope. The second week, love. Last week, we looked at the teaching on peace. Peace. Today we're going to be taking a look at the subject of joy, and to kind of spearhead everything, I want to give some time, a few minutes or so, to a Bible Project video that talks a little bit about joy. In fact, I think does a lot better job than I could in a much more condensed moment of time. So let's go ahead and listen to this little video, and then we'll get into the teaching. Being in a good mood is really great, and most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. 
Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads, happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the Apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy, even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith, or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. I want to read uh, the passage. So if you guys would not mind standing along with me. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14 should be up on the screen. You can follow along. I'm going to read it out loud, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work looking at this amazing passage that has to do with the subject of joy. It says this, In the same region where Jesus was born, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great joy or great fear, sorry, the other word. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you for our time here and we ask that you would just speak to us, show us, God, who you are. God, give us hearts and lives that respond accordingly and appropriately to who you are and what the revelation is that you've given to us. God, we pray that you would just uh, move in our midst here, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.
So I'll grab a seat. I really just want to look at four specific observations in this passage that we looked at, and then we'll kind of end with a really important kind of uh, uh, track back, if you would, going back to the ancient Old Testament that kind of highlighted or looked forward to this specific time of Jesus' life. So the four things I really want to just focus on that kind of stand out to me in the passage, they're all up here, and then I'll just kind of go through them one by one. It should be nice and simple. But the, the first idea that I think just kind of jumps out to me is that these shepherds, they were not expecting anything significant that day. So it's kind of this idea of business as usual, life as usual, which I find that's kind of interesting. Now, number one, um, again, sort of the big E on the I chart is that uh, who's interwoven into the storyline are shepherds, shepherds. So if you understand a little bit about kind of first century, the idea of shepherds, for the most part, not only were they of the lower class, meaning they were not uh, known for their ideas or their intellectual advancements or their philosophical understandings or their contribution to mathematics or science, they, they were literally nobodies when it came to society at large. And secondly, many of them were just children. Uh, like teenagers. That was kind of the job that was relegated to those that were typically shepherds. So these were the people that were probably off in the fields keeping watch, keeping charge of the flock of these uh, sheep and goats as well. But the point that I think that's fascinating to me is that as these young people show up for work, they're not really expecting anything. They're not looking for a miracle. They're not thinking God's going to come into a manger. None of this is on their mind which I find a lot of hope in that because for the most part, I can relate to this. How many times do we just wake up and we just go about our day, business as usual, life as usual. There's no new expectation of anything out of the ordinary that's going to come into my life. And yet God does show up oftentimes in just those moments. So the second thing that I think that stands out to me is this disruption that they find themselves confronted with totally frightens them. So again, just to be fair, I think it would to all of us as well. Imagine angels showing up. You're just going about your good old business, standing in line at Trader Joe's, and all of a sudden, this massive, brilliant being shows up and just wrecks havoc over the entire, like, you know, first aisles, right? The big idea is it would terrify you. That's exactly what it does to these guys. They're utterly terrified. They become fearful. Verse 9 says this, an angel Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were filled with great fear, complete mega terrorist, mega phobios, I think is the way that the word kind of plays out. Mega, not mega, mega, mega phobios. The big idea of just being utterly terrified is exactly what overtakes these guys. The third thing is what stands out to me is all of these, they were instructed and or commanded to not fear, to allow the good news of great joy to replace their fear. And again, this is is really kind of interesting. Just listen to how it plays out in the text. Verse 10 says this, and then the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So what I find really fascinating to me in just understanding this is that the angel, as the angel shows up, has this specific message that he's unpacking or she or whatever it is, uh, unpacking to these people. And he basically is telling them, do not be afraid. It's a command. It's one of the number one commands that you'll find anywhere throughout the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So most 
repeated command over and over and over again. And, and you can step back and ask the question, why is that so consistently, so constantly repeated throughout the biblical narrative? And I think obvious answer is people by nature are prone towards fear. Just pause and think about that. How many things right now in our lives, in your life, has subjected you to fear? What types of anxieties do you find yourself dealing with? I mean, you can just kind of go through a list, a laundry list of stuff that 2021 has brought from a pandemic to the fears of what's going to happen in the future to vaccines to getting vaccinated to those that are not getting vaccinated. All these fears that can kind of cripple us all the way to continued racial injustices that continue to happen and continue to be inflamed in the media. Uh, fears that are just constantly all around us in all sorts of flavors and sizes that are just consistently, constantly plaguing us. There's fears that come as a result of sickness and suffering, death, miscarriages, grief, uh, losing people whom we love. Uh, people that have lost their jobs, people that have lost their livelihoods, fears of not being able to go to school or fulfill a career or get a promotion. For whatever reason, you can get the idea. Fears of not getting a promotion that you would hope to get. Fears are real. Social media is a consistent reminder to us of the life that we long for, the thing, the better that's somewhere out there, but at the same time, simultaneously consistently reminding us and maybe even mocking us, you do not have it. No matter how much you long for it and desire it and crave it, you still do not have it. There's always FOMO, the fear of missing out on something that's out there. We are crippled and surrounded by fears. Uh, We can... Look with the biblical narrative that the nations continue to rage, the wicked prosper, the righteous languish. In other words, to put it in the words of C.S. Lewis and Chronicles of Narnia, it feels like it's always winter and never Christmas. That's where we live. We live kind of within this, this moment where fear's all around us. And, and I, I think the words that the angelic, being says to the shepherds is, again, it's, it's not just saying, stop being afraid. It's not just the command without sort of a reason for the command. And this, to me, is what's fantastic, is it's a command that's deeply tethered to another alternative story to anchor yourself into. It's the gospel. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Before I do, I want to take a look at something that I think kind of presents itself throughout the entire Bible, which we're all just described, next slide, as this present sadness slash future gladness paradigm. In other words, what we see throughout the Bible is sort of this invitation to, in spite of present sadness, to anchor yourself into this future gladness that one day God promises. And I'll give you some examples of how this kind of plays out in the Bible. So Psalm 30, verse 5 says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So the big idea is you think in the night, have you ever like woken up in the middle of the night just terrified for no explainable reason? There's just something sitting on your chest. You can't explain it. You feel it. There's no reason for it. Uh, this, this is not an emotion that's foreign to just, you know, to any other like population other than ours. This is 
part of humanity, part of being a human being on this planet. And yet, at the same time, God gives these and deposits these promises where he says, look, even though weeping may tarry in the night, joy will come in the morning. There is a moment in time, in other words, that joy will overtake or replace that fear that is crippling you. Psalm 126, verse 6 says, He who goes out with weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. So again, the, the, the image is someone who's going out, just sunken chest, sad, bent over, depleted, depressed, and yet he's saying they will return with sheaves on their shoulders. You know, the, the idea of fruitfulness, they'll come back restored, renewed with something of God's Blessing upon them. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These are the words of Jesus. Uh, John 16, verse 20. This is a reference to when Jesus is going to die. And he's telling his disciples, look, here's what you can anticipate. Here's what's expected. You will be filled with incredibly deep and acute sorrow. But that sorrow will follow, be followed by joy, deep, deep joy. And he goes on to even say that that very joy that you will then have, no one, nothing can ultimately strip it away from you or rob it from you. Listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. So I want us to think about this, this paradigm of present sadness, future gladness. This is what followers of Jesus. And again, I think this is so important because I would say that it is a false form of Christianity that teaches you to deny the sorrow that you find yourself in. That's shallow. It doesn't work, man. I know, like, I've been in context where that is and has been sort of the Christian narrative. You know, turn that frown upside down, just act as if everything's okay, and it'll be okay. That is not the biblical storyline. The biblical storyline is, no, there are some things that are absolutely horrible. They're really bad. They're filled with injustice. They cause incredible grief. They cause me to just want to do nothing except curl up in a ball on a warm bed with the blinds closed for just three days and not want to leave and not want to have to talk to anybody. That's part of life. And yet in the midst of that, you fight because you know that in the future, there's a joy that will come. This is what God says, is, is that's the story we find ourselves in. Not denial of the pain, the grief, the hardship, acceptance of it, but that's not, the, that's not the whole story. The whole story is God is on the move. This is what Advent's all about. It reminds us to look back to what God has done that's been a part of this long historical storyline of promises made, Moments of just deep anguish and loss and pain and grief, and yet God fulfilling those promises, and we're in the midst of the repeat of that story again, longing, anchoring our hope in that future that God will one day make good on all his promises. So we see again, just in summary, the idea that the angel, messenger from God, instructs them, commands them, do not fear, by inviting them to allow the good news, the gospel, to replace their fear. That's, I would say, what we are also invited to do. Think about what is it that we find ourselves confronted with that causes that heaviness of soul. Um, The invitation for us is to think about something bigger, greater, more lasting, more eternal, more life-giving, 
And that's the good news, which is what I want to finish on now and focus our attention thoughts upon, is the fourth movement in this is the idea that we see that Jesus clearly is the good news. Take a look at this again, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, I'm going to pack a couple things because he just got finished saying that, listen, don't be afraid. Listen to the good news of great joy. In other words, good news that brings great joy if you allow it. And then he goes on to tether that good news of great joy to the person. It's not just an emotion. It's not just an event that we engage in or participate in or that we show up for and then we get kind of the benefits of being there. I mean, look, Disneyland can be the happiest place on earth for a moment until you come home or until you have to deal with traffic and then it's over. All of that quote-unquote joy that you had in that moment is gone. This is a different type of joy that's eternal, that's anchored into something that far outweighs anything else that we can imagine. And this is what he's actually saying. It's, it's, a, it's a joy that's actually tethered to a person, Jesus. Now, who's Jesus? He goes on to tell us that he was born in the city of David and that he is Christ. The word Christ can literally mean, you can just simply underline the word Christ and then draw the word or write the word Lord or King if you want. And that's the big idea. That's what Christ means. It literally means he is King. God is King. So I want you to just pause and think about this. God, the author of all things, steps into his own story. That's the picture of Christmas. Look, we live in a world today that I think there's plenty of reason why people can become cynical and skeptical of who God is and what God is up to. There's plenty of reasons why that would make a lot of sense. And yet, one of the main reasons why I think a lot of times people would deny God or turn away from God. In other words, I would say the number one narrative that oftentimes leads to um, some form of atheism or a denial of the existence of God is the reality of suffering. Suffering. And again, from a logical perspective, it's like, well, if God is good, if he does exist, then why does he allow suffering? But we're not always given the answers as to why that happens. In fact, most of the time, we're not given the answers to that. But what we are given is this depiction of a God that's not immune from suffering. He steps into this world. And again, listen to the description of how the storyteller, Luke, tells us who Jesus is. It's in verse 12. And this will be the sign to you. In other words, uh, telling these Shepherds, hey, if you want to look for a sign, here's what to look for. Now, again, in their minds, they've been trained probably since their youth that, hey, one of these days, God will show up and God will reign and the kingdom of God will break through and all of our enemies will be overthrown. So it would not have been uncommon for first century Jewish people to think about God when he steps in or when he sends his Messiah, that he will be like a warrior God, like a Muhammad or like a King David like a warrior king who will execute enemies. So, you know, as I was reading this, I was, I was thinking, it's interesting to me that he says, and this will be the sign to you. He doesn't say there'll be a pile of dead bodies mounted up, blood everywhere, because the king has arrived. And he's a king that kills his enemy. That's what I would think. If God's going to show up, if God's going to defeat my enemies, I'm on bloodshed. I want vengeance. 
I want my enemies, the ones that cause me pain and hurt and grief and agony, to pay. That's what my, my flesh wants. But what God knows human beings need is, is an alternative to that cycle of violence that just continues on bringing death, pain, suffering, destruction on repeat over and over and over again. And God comes to say, I'm going to break that cycle. How does he do that? And here's the sign that will be given to you. Listen again. This will be the sign. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. A baby. What is more vulnerable than a baby? And it's not just any baby. It's a baby that's literally wrapped. Now, the word that's used there, wrapped in swaddling clothes. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Greek word for you because that sounds stupid. But the point of the matter is, the idea is, if you ever seen a baby that's freshly you know, out of the womb, they, they would wrap it so tightly, it's like, you know, wrapped. It's not even able to move. Kind of like Jesus on the cross. How does God come? As a baby, vulnerable, wrapped in a manger. Again, we have all these images, these romanticized images of a manger, you know, glamorized probably under your Christmas tree somewhere in the house where, you know, where it's like, it's all nice and pretty and cool looking. But the point of the matter is, a manger is actually a feeding trough. It smelled probably like animal dung. It just smelled. It had that smell of like Avila Valley Barn. You know what I'm talking about? It just, it was not... It was not something that smelled good, like patchouli oil and dirt and poop and just all of this. Where was Jesus, the God-man, laying? In a feeding trough, vulnerable, wrapped. This is how God chose to come into this world, to do something about the brokenness in this world. This is an image that God says, I want you to absorb and take in. Why is it important? I think it's important because there's a lot of false God narratives or God stories that we have been told about God that we oftentimes recycle and tell about God. But one of the chief images that we receive during this time of Advent is that the God that comes into this world, the God that actually cares, the God that actually loves this world, that God that's deeply tethered or connected to the passage that we've been reciting and thinking about, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not suffer or not perish, but have eternal life, that the God that rules over all things is the God that actually cares about us is a God that actually wants to do something about the sin, the suffering, the grief, the pain, the loss. Not by just simply giving us instruction, writing a book, doing a master class, a YouTube video. It's not who he is. He says, I will come into this world. I will take upon myself the same suffering that you suffer with, and I will show you the way forward. Watch me. Follow me. And I'll give you life. This is the God that we're invited to think about, to consider. To finish this up, I want to think ahead. Uh, actually, we're kind of thinking backwards, but think ahead, ahead into the book of Revelation. I want to just finish with some final thoughts in ending with this. And then I want to finish by reading a simple passage out of the book of Isaiah. So the book of Revelation, to me, as I 
typically have the past several years ended out my year is by reading the entire book of Revelation in one setting. I would invite you to do the same. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Listen to it in a translation that's easily, and I say listen to it, like find a Bible app that just reads it to you. You can listen to it. That's the point I'm trying to make. Is that, I, I personally, I think the book of Revelation is one of the most joy-filled, joy-creating, joy-stimulating books of the entire Bible. Now, for some of you, you might be shocked by that because you've been taught and trained, and I have to apologize to you for this because a lot of pastors and preachers have done this to you. To think of the book of Revelation as a book of doom and gloom and destruction and bloodshed and evil and wickedness that God is going to just simply flex and people will die. And it's a book that has oftentimes caused so much confusion, grief. But actually, I think it's a book that's intended to breathe deep joy. And I'll give you four main reasons why I think This is part of the story because, again, in the book of Luke, in the story of Advent, we see Jesus as the baby, vulnerable, coming to make himself known by human beings. Throughout the book of Revelation, there's four main, I would say, main themes that Jesus depicts himself as. And I'll go through these real quickly. Um, Again, if I had time to unpack the entire book, but I'm just going to look at four main themes. Number one, it gives us this picture of Jesus as the deliverer, meaning he delivers God's people from evil empire, otherwise known as this beastly empire of Babylon. In other words, this idea, this oppressive, destructive world system, and it's not just simply in someday future, it's right now. Any empire on planet Earth that has ever existed, that is existing today, All of them are motivated by self-preservation to where they would gladly crush the weak in order to advance themselves. Every empire. I don't care what empire it is. Take your pick. But the picture of Revelation is that Jesus delivers from this beastly empire those who trust in him. In other words, as they're being crushed, in some cases, they are actually crushed and oppressed, and they lose their lives. But Jesus says, it's okay. I've overcome this world. I give you life. Even though you've been chewed in the jaws of the beastly empire, I will give you life. Second picture, as we see, is Jesus the victor over death. Over and over again, we see this image of Jesus described and revealed as the one who takes on our greatest foe, which, by the way, our greatest foe is not vaccines. It's not some virus, whether it be a virus of COVID-19 or a virus of lunacy. Jesus gives victory over our greatest enemy, which is death. And this is what we see repeatedly over and over and over again. Jesus stands up and conquers our greatest enemy, death. Thirdly, we see Jesus, this bridegroom. We see the picture of this great wedding, this image of people that were once basically in weird, odd relationships with the empire and then giving them, becoming soiled by this. Jesus says, no, come to me and you will become my bride. It's kind of an odd image, especially if you're a dude, but play, play with me for a moment. The image is that we will be given forever and ever in covenantal relationship to the one who gave himself for us. Jesus. Lastly, we see Jesus ultimately the safe dwelling place. In the end and closing remarks of the book of Revelation, we see Jesus described as like the city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and it becomes this dwelling place of God's people. 
So every single human being that has been longing for some place to permanently call their home or some place to belong or some place where they feel safe at home in their own skin, Jesus says, I will be your eternal dwelling place. This is why I say the book of Revelation actually, actually should be read as a book that breathes incredible joy to its readers. It's one of the reasons why I think the book of Revelation itself says those who read this book will be blessed. If you read the book and you get angry, you start looking for your enemies to crush you, you didn't didn't read it right. Sorry. If that's how you were told to read it because some pastor told you to read that way, I'm sorry, he failed in his job. The book of Revelation is a book of blessing because it points us to the ultimate joy that's tethered to and anchored in Jesus. So in closing, I want to go all the way back to the book of Isaiah. I want to read a passage over you guys as we conclude. And so let me read this to you. Dan will come forth, and he'll get ready to lead us in a song of worship. I'm going to have you guys stand in just a moment, not yet, though. But just listen to this passage. And as soon as I'm done reading this passage, I'm going to invite you to stand. What we will do in closing, we will sing together. But the way that we will do this today is different than the way we typically do it on a Sunday, is we will also light candles. And the big idea behind that is this idea, this thought that says that God one day in the Old Testament passages that he, as the waters cover the earth, so one day the glory of the Lord will cover all planet earth. The big image is that right now we live in a world that is shaded by evil and darkness and pain and hardship. For Many, uh, this season of year is really hard. It's, it's a reminder of what we don't have. It's a reminder of what we wish we had, but we don't have. Um, we see people happy and joyful, and yet we feel this ache of loss and pain and hardship. And the reality is that the hope of the gospel is God says, one day, as I'm on the move, I will restore this planet from all that it's been suffering under. And my glory will fill this entire planet. And I'm going to read a passage to you out of the book of Isaiah that actually hints forward to the life of Jesus. So just listen to this as I read it. And I'm going to invite you to stand. The ushers will come forward. They will light the candles in the front. And then we will kind of go towards the back. And the picture that we will have is it will be a room that will be filled with light. The image is obvious. Like God will one day shine forth brightness. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10 says this. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and the blossom like the crocus. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice with singing and joy. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Don't be afraid. Behold, your God will come. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the meat will sing for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Burning sand shall become a fresh spring of water. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and shall be called the way of holiness. 
and the ransom of the Lord shall return to the eternal city of Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and grief will ultimately flee away. This is the hope we have. And this hope all started on that day where the shepherds were instructed, don't be afraid. Be filled with joy that comes from knowing that God has taken his place in this world. He has come. Heaven and earth have overlapped in Jesus. We are invited to trust this God at this moment in this place with the work that he's up to in this world. So I don't know where you're at, how this story even affects you. My invitation to you would be to trust this God. That involves a process of you maybe even confessing false stories, false narratives that you have trusted in to confess those to God. Say, God, I'm sorry for trusting in these false stories, these false hopes. I lay them at your feet and in turn, I receive the story that you've given, the gospel, the good news that has been proclaimed. So as we all stand, let's all do that now. We will light our candles, we will sing together, and then we will conclude.